Father, we come before you uh, very mindful and aware that you are God, that all things are for you and from you and through you, that we love you because you loved us first. We willingly and joyfully come to you because you chose us first even before, before the foundation of the world. So we bow down before you, Father. You are God, and we are mindful that we are dust of the ground. But we are grateful that you are our God, and we are your people. And in this day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, in this day that we pray for your kingdom to come, for those who are preaching and laboring in your kingdom around the world, Many have already concluded their services. Others are about to start, and others are doing it just like us. We pray for Christ to be proclaimed, for his name to be magnified, for your kingdom to grow, the tents of Israel to be expanded through conversions, through the preaching of the word, people coming to bow before your Savior, before your Son. Father, we also are mindful that you have a term for our lives. And we are grateful that Louise has ceased from suffering. We are grateful that Louise is seeing things that are unimaginable. Paul saw them and he was not allowed to speak of them, but they were ineffable things. And Louise is now is Louise now is in your presence, but we pray for those who remain behind, for Anna the widow, for Betty for George and for Michael, that you grant them consolation from the Spirit, that you grant them comfort, that they may be strengthened in the inner man according to your power and the power of your Spirit, and that you may be glorified in this sad occasion for them, this joyous, glorious day for Luis, who is seeing his Savior, who is no longer living by faith, but is now living by sight, because all live before you. Father, we commit them to you, and also we commit the preaching of the word now, asking your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Luke 7. <laughs> Thank you all. Luke seven thirty six through 50. Today's sermon, uh, when the gospel upsets religion, Jesus the pious, and the sinful woman. I love this passage. Luke seven thirty six through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this, one, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, 
I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors who owed one owed 100, 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And may God bless the reading of his word. Twice in December and in January, I was walking through this commercial street in Santo Domingo. It used to be a street, but now they made it just a, like, like they made with uh, Times Square, only for people. You don't have cars, you just walk through the city. Twice, some crazy dude has seen me and approached me. And I tell my family, yes, I have this magnet for crazy people. Any of you who like to talk to me, that's because you're crazy too. Because I, I just have this thing that attracts crazy, crazy dudes. So he comes and starts talking to me. And one of them said, that's Edwin Gonzalez. I know that guy, even by name. That's Edwin Gonzalez. I know him. And my family, my wife, and my sister start getting jittery like, oh, my, what, what are we going to do that? Well, we ended up talking. We used to be together in church. We used to sing together uh, in the choir and everything. Uh, but anyways, it was awkward talking to a crazy dude on the street who calls you by name, who knows who you are. Jesus was approached by a lot of strange people. He never felt awkward with sinners. He never felt awkward even with demon-possessed people. He, whenever he faced the worst kind of people, he welcomed them. And that's the gospel. And the more I read the gospels, the more I find this contrast between religion, established religion, what we do in church, and Jesus. And many times I wonder if Jesus would walk into our church, lead worship, sing, play music, and then preach. How would some of us feel? Perhaps he wouldn't fit our mold. Perhaps. Here we have a passage that has certain scenes. Maria Luisa is going to put them on the screen for you. There's an invitation to dinner. There's this em embarrassing disruption. And then Luke brings this role reversal that the wrong people did the right thing or the right people did the wrong thing. And then finally we have this absolution, this forgiveness of sin to the woman. 
The invitation to dinner is very obvious in the text. One of the Pharisees invited him. The setting in Luke is that Jesus was in Galilee. He lived in Capernaum, Galilean zone or area. One of the Pharisees from the area invites him. The preceding text appears or shows Jesus in that area in Israel. A Pharisee invites him. Now we read that quickly, but who was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a theologian. A Pharisee was a leader, a religious leader, a moral instructor. The Pharisees had started from the days of Ezra. And, and their name, the Farage, the separated ones, was that they were there. And for centuries, they had been instructed Israel on the law and also helped with the Talmudic traditions. They had their confessions too and their traditions. And the whole purpose of doing it was to prevent Israel from falling back into the idolatry that brought the deportations and God's judgment. So the Pharisees' job, starting from the days of Ezra, was to teach the law to the people to make sure they remained faithful to the covenant close to God. They were the moral, religious, theology instructors in town. One of them, Simon, lived in Galilee, and he invited Jesus to his house. Presumably, and I'm speculating, it's not in the text, he wanted to know more about this teacher whose fame was spreading. Capernaum had a toll gate for travelers who would come north to south. And in, through that toll gate, you had all kinds of, of foreigners going through with their merchandise, people from all over the place that were doing business in the area. And since they have to pay toll, they had to go through it. And that's how they learned about Jesus and his teaching, his miracles, his signs, his wonders. And that's how you, one of the gospels says that his fame spread out. Those travelers were the conduits that spread the fame of Jesus as a teacher and as a miracle worker. Simon says, who's this guy? Let's find out. He did not belong to any of the Pharisaical schools of the day, either the school of Gamal or Hillel. So who is he? He's teaching. The people are following him, are looking to him as an instructor, as a rabbi. Let's find out. Invite him to dinner. And Jesus accepts. I love it. He was not a separatist. Spent decades of my Christian life being taught that I had to be a separatist. That if my friends who were not Christians invited me, the way to shine the gospel with them was to say, No, I'm a holy man, I don't eat with you. That was not exactly set that way, but that's the way we lived. Jesus was not a separatist. Any opportunity is good to shine the gospel. He didn't waste any in any setting or context to just go and serve. And God will use anything to draw people to himself. Even curiosity, and perhaps Simon's curiosity, was something that drew him to invite Jesus. Secondly, he comes to dinner, but then we find this embarrassing moment, this embarrassing disruption. The well-known sinner in town comes and arrives. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're there eating with a family, whatever. You happen to bring a friend that day, but there's that uncle or that cousin or that weirdo that every family has. 
and I guess in mine it's me, but every, everyone knows what is that. And that person shows up and you say, ouch, I wish this person were not here. Or you're talking to a colleague or find, find a friend somewhere in a public place, and this weird friend shows up and you feel like, oh, I hope, I hope they don't embarrass me here. That embarrassing disruption happened. No more and no less than with a bad girl in town. Luke doesn't describe anything about her. The passage says she was a sinner. Interesting that Andrew read the passage of Mary anointing Jesus. That was Mary, Lazarus' brother, nothing to do with this one. This is another context. In fact, this happened probably around a year before the crucifixion. The event with Mary happened the week of the crucifixion, as John describes it in chapter 12. So don't confuse the passages. This is another woman. Some people say, oh, that was Mary Magdalene. Did you read that in the text? No. Then don't think, don't, don't say it's Mary Magdalene. If it was her, we do not know. The text doesn't say it. And just get into the habit of saying what the text says. And if the text doesn't say it, you say, well, perhaps my speculation, my thought could be. So we'll leave it at that. It's another woman is the sinner in town. She was a prostitute. The text doesn't say she was a prostitute even though we assume she was. And there are elements in the text that we'll examine in a little bit that may point to the fact that she was a woman of a pretty bad moral reputation. But Luke does not identify her except with verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city, of the city who was a sinner. I want us to stop for a second because we read the Bible with our 21st century North American eyes and we don't picture things the way they really happened. It's, it's hard to do it for us. And half of the sermon for preachers is just to building a bridge between the text and our culture and at least getting ourselves as close as we can to the culture to try to get and grab the meaning and the sense of the passage. So let's try to absorb the scene for a second and see if we can visualize how they ate in the day. That's a, that's a picture, that's a painting, that's the way Greeks ate way before Jesus' time. The Romans came and adopted the same style. They would recline at the table, and you probably know or have read in the Gospels this reclining at the table, even the Last Supper. We're accustomed to those middle-aged paintings that there are people sitting on a, on a table. That's the way they ate. That's why John was reclining and leaning on Jesus' chest. And Peter says to him, who is a traitor? Because they ate that way. So understand the setting. And as you look at the picture, now imagine one of those individuals is Jesus. And this sinful woman comes from behind and starts weeping at his feet. Do you get the picture? Let's read the text again. When she learned that he was reclining at the table... In the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, verse 38, and standing behind his feet, now you can see why Luke says, behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And I can only imagine the deafening silence. Like when, when, when Victor had to come and fix my, my shirt and, and fix the mic, and, 
Everybody was looking like, okay, there we go, right? But this is funny. Imagine being at this dinner in the house of the well-known theologian, the Arcee Sproul of the day, the John MacArthur in town, who is inviting this guy who is also in town, but he's not from any of our schools of theology. We, we don't know where he comes from. And then the known bad girl in town shows up and in that setting starts kissing his feet, wiping them, and crying over him. I, I, oh, you're eating, and he's like, you stop eating, you stop drinking, like, what, what's going on? That's exactly the scene, deafening silence. Verse 39, Simon, who is the host, says, oh my word, they came to crash my party, she came to make a disaster here, who had invited him, Simon the Pharisee, when he saw this, he said to himself in silence, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. The Pharisee condemned in silence, but Jesus heard it. We may look and appear nice to people, but Jesus knows who we are. And we are what we do and how we act when nobody's watching. We are not this. We are what we are when nobody's seeing us. When nobody has any idea of who we are or when we're just all alone. Just watch yourself. That's who we are. Now, Jesus sees who he is, but there's something we need to explain to get the text. Because Simon says, if he were a prophet, first of all, he would know who she is. But then he makes this, he has this thought. This woman who is touching him. What do you think he, he sort of zoomed at the fact that she was touching him? Because the law in Leviticus 18 had regulations about women who would become unclean under two circumstances, her menstrual period and sexual intercourse. By the way, so you don't panic, I am not saying that Christians have to follow the directions of Leviticus 18 according to those things. Certain elements about life in the marriage belong to three people, husband, wife, and the Holy Spirit. I make the clarification for those of you who are married in case the question comes afterwards. But in the Old Testament where the hygienic laws and the hygienic context of life was not what we have today, sexual intercourse and menstrual period would make a woman unclean, therefore untouchable. Now, if this was a prostitute whose life habitually engaged intercourse with many men, this woman was completely unclean ceremonially and therefore untouchable. So the Pharisee is scandalized that the prostitute in town is touching Jesus. And he says if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. And here comes the role reversal. 
role, the role reversal is that the sinner was worshiping while the pious was condemning in self-righteousness. The one who had no clue and should have known nothing, and sorry for the cacophony, about worship is worshiping. And the theologian who knew better is judging and condemning. What is a woman doing? She brought an alabaster flask with ointment. In the case of Mary, it says it was expensive, worth 300 denarii, worth the salary of a year. We're not given the cost of this perfume, so we don't know. We don't know how expensive it was, but it was carried in, a, it was carried in an alabaster flask. Perfumes were carried there, or perfumed oil, because it was a marble thing that had a seal and a cover that would allow the perfume to go without losing its essence for a long time. So whether the perfume was like one my wife tried to buy from me at a Walmart parking lot for 10 bucks, which was a disaster, or the expensive ones I like, we don't know, but it was her perfume carried in an alabaster flask for conservation. How expensive? We don't know. But it was her best. And she wept over Jesus' feet. So she brought her best and she came broken to cry and to weep on Jesus' feet. And I see those tears as tears of brokenness and tears of gratitude. Sin under conviction of the Spirit will shake us in our inner being. If we understand something about the holiness of God, and if you want a good book to read, read R.C. Sproul, whom I mentioned. He's with the Lord. The holiness of God. If we understand something about the holiness of God, and then we understand something about how impossible it is for us to meet the standard, then the conviction of the Spirit will shake our inner being. I know that what is popular is to speak nice things to people. Who wants to come to church to hear about an old book explained and to hear about sin and condemnation and righteousness? No, tell me nice things because I have a hard life during the week. Well, our, our business is not telling you nice things. Our business is telling you it as it is. The Holy Spirit conviction will shake our inner being and also forgiveness under the soothing of the Spirit will sparkle the fountain of our tears and gratitude. Now, you may be a person who doesn't cry, and I get it. I'm not asking you to be emotional or emotionalistic, but you get the point. Salvation is not just an intellectual conviction. Salvation is not just an intellectual proposition. Salvation has a lot to do with our emotions and how the grace of God interacts with our inner being. So here's this woman weeping. And she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. She was humbled. She was reclined at his feet. She didn't go for the head. She didn't go for the arms to get an embrace. She didn't go to show people that, that she knew him. Because I have a suspicion 
It's not in the text, but I suspect that if she came to, wipe, to weep and wipe his feet, probably they had had already an encounter. That's my speculation. The text doesn't say it. But it makes me believe that, that perhaps she had already known or heard about Jesus. Perhaps she had already been forgiven of her sins and she already knew it. And she just came as an expression of worship. Maybe, maybe not. Whatever the circumstances, she came in humiliation. She came for his feet. And she wiped and dried those feet she had wet with her tears, with her hair. Now, the hair is the glory of a woman. But that's not in ancient days. That, that is in days today. I mean, you men, if you are married, you have, you're accustomed to the sound. That's a blower. With your wife's hair being blown, right? Being dried. And, and all these, you know, messing around and spending money. I mean, I used to have a, a, a barber, and, and she charged me $20 for a haircut. And, and my wife spends three times that for a haircut. She doesn't do it frequently, but she, she, I mean, women's hair is something important. In fact, we guys, if we're together and we see a gentleman spending too much time in front of the mirror messing with the hair, we immediately become suspicious. Because all we care for is that it's calm and clean. That's it. We don't care anything about hair. And, and some do not even have any or have some. Let me take it away and forget it. I look better, you know, uh, completely bold. So we understand she gave her best, her honor, her glory to wipe and dry Jesus' muddy feet. She was cleaning the mud that her tears mingled with the dust on his sandals created. And she was drying the mud. As she was dropping tears on him, she would take the hair to clean it. She gave her honor. And then she kissed Jesus' feet. Manifest affection. And I suspect she was a harlot. The kiss, the lips she used to kiss other men in her harlotry. Now she was using to kiss the feet of her Savior. And she didn't just give one kiss to those feet. She did it repeatedly. And I say that because in verse 45, Jesus tells Simon when he was rebuking him, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Please visualize this. Jesus is at a table reclining. There's a sinner in town weeping. Weeping. Can you picture that? Can you picture the worship, the affection, the sense of commotion while the Pharisees saying, guys were a prophet, he would know who is doing this for him. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that scene? 
as the harlot or the sinful woman kissing and weeping and wiping Jesus' feet? Is that something that resonates with you? Or is this just a club, a preaching club, that we gather on Sundays to hear a guy talk and learn something new? I leave that question for yourself. Just a note. note. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let that person be anathema. And anathema means damned. Love to Jesus, love to God is a first commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't know me, I'm a confessed Calvinist, covenantal, amillennial, sublapsarian. Put all the labels you want. The hell with that. If there is no love to God from the heart. This is not about intellect. Even though the intellect is involved. This is a relationship with God. And then, while the sinner worshipped, the pious condemned in self-righteousness. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon had the correct theology. The Pharisees were not heretics. They were self-righteous. They were hypocrites. (laughs) They had a life on the outside and another one inside and in secret. But they were not heretics. Jesus said to the people, when the Pharisees sit on the chair of Moses, when the Pharisees rise, whether at the temple or at the synagogue, to instruct, do everything they say. Because they spoke from the Torah. They spoke from the Word of God. And when they spoke from the Word of God, they had God's imprimatur in what they said. And what they said, when it was from the Word of God, was right. But Jesus says, but don't do according to their works. Because they say, but they do not do. So here's the correct theologian being deadly wrong about Jesus and about the woman. Grace is a discomfort to the righteous. I should say to the self-righteous. Grace is a discomfort. Grace bothers religion. The gospel upsets established religion. The other day I was going to a church with Maria Luisa in the DR. I, I visited there. I called a friend. Hey, I want to visit your church. 
When, what time is it? It's 11. Are you here? Come preach. I, I was not there to preach, but they asked me to preach. Okay, fine. Let's do it. And as I'm driving to the church, we go by a lot of poor people. Normally in third world countries, you, it doesn't matter where you live. You can't avoid seeing poverty. Even if you live in the most prestigious place, you can't avoid poverty. It's there. It's all over. It's spread. It's, it's pervasive in, the, in society, in the fabric of the culture. And I told my wife, you know that heaven will look like this, right? That heaven will be full of poor people, of the despised, of the neglected. Because James says that God has chosen the poor to be heirs of the kingdom. The apostles told Paul, do not neglect the poor. Jesus proved to John the Baptist's disciples that he was a dis- that he was Messiah because the gospel was being preached to the poor. If you think heaven will look like a North American middle class tidy up church, I have news for you. Look at that chart of the world's population today. You see the red dot? That's U.S. and Canada. So if you remove Canada, you drop 37 million from there. And then it starts getting slower and, and smaller. Heaven, a lot of people will look like that in heaven, by the way. A lot of them. A lot of people in heaven will be of color. And a lot of people in heaven will come from a very poor, humble, meek origin. Because that's the way God designed the gospel. How difficult, how difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that, not me. So keep that in mind, because in this passage, we have a side of it. We have the harlot in town, or the sinner in town, worshiping while the godly was judging. And then we have finally Jesus' vindication of the woman. And he vindicates the woman with a parable. As Simon is judging in his mind, Jesus says, hey, Simon, uh, let me ask you something. A man had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other one owed 50. Those numbers do not jive with us. One owed almost two years worth of a salary. And the other one owed about two months of salary. But they could not pay. So he forgave them both. None of them could pay. doesn't matter what you owe. We cannot pay God. Get it in your system. Whenever Jesus uses those illustrations. is to make the point. We cannot pay. Don't pray, as I sometimes pray in my heresy, Oh, Lord, how could I pay you? I said, forgive me. I don't want to pay you. Jesus already paid. Because we emotionally, like, how could I pay? You cannot pay anything. You cannot return to God any of his favors. Nor I. Nobody can. But no, could, no one could pay. Simon, who do you think will love him more? And Simon says, oh, the one who was, I guess, very proper, I suppose, the one who was forgiven more can only hear Simon and his prim propriety. And Jesus said, oh, you have judged rightly. He was judging the woman. <laughs> he says, oh, that one you have judged correctly. Remember the Chronicles of Narnia? When Lucy asks Aslan, have you grown? And Aslan says, no, I'm the same size. But as you grow, you'll see me bigger. That's the way it works. The more you know of God's grace, the more you figure out how much you were forgiven, 
the bigger the forgiveness and the grace looks. So Simon's head was correct. His heart was not. He couldn't judge himself correctly. He heard the parable, but he couldn't realize that he was part of the parable. Tim Keller says, we are so instinctively and profoundly so self-centered that we don't even realize it. We don't even know how much incurvatos in say, bent towards ourselves we are. It is so big that we hear things and we always think, oh, he's talking about someone else. Legalism, no, I'm not a legalist, he's talking about someone else. Liberal, it's, I'm not a liberal, he's talking about someone else. Those who just come to church as a preaching club, that's not me, of course not. Those who judge others, of course that's not me. That's the way we are. Jesus condemned Simon's self-absorption. He bypassed common courtesies. Simon, I came to your house. You did not greet me with a kiss. That was a, that was a habit. That was a custom. You, you walk through the streets in, in Israel and you see people, if they are Jews or even Arabic, they kiss one another as they greet. You did not even kiss me when I came in. You did not anoint my hair my head with oil. I was customary. You did not offer me a basin to wash my feet. Remember the Jesus washing of the feet? I was customary. You didn't do any of these things for me. But then this woman, this woman's actions, she did everything. And I love it that Jesus pointed each one of her actions to Simon. Each one of them. Since I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing me. She has wet my feet with her tears. She has, she has dried my feet and wiped them with her hair. He, he was specific in pointing out what she did. And I love that because, yes, that's God. He doesn't forgive even a glass of cold water given to a disciple. God doesn't forget. That's the God we serve. And then... Jesus showed his authority as God. Verse 47. She loves much. She loved much. Her many sins are forgiven. And then the people are bewildered. What's going on here? Those who are invited to this guy, is, what's going on? But their bewilderment is our hope. She loved much. For he who is forgiven little loves little. And she said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Jesus showed his authority as God. He spoke peace and forgiveness to her. But only God can forgive. Yes, he knew who he was. Jesus forgave her and said to her, your sins are forgiven. That is the gospel. When we are at night, bewildered, overwhelmed, attacked from every flank because of guilt, because we blow it, because we don't seem to grow, because we don't seem to progress, or because some great heinous sin we have committed, 
Jesus' word to our conscience is, if we believe, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Sleep and rest in peace. That's the gospel. And Jesus showed his authority by saying to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, how do you answer this question? Do you think there are people who need more forgiveness than others? Don't answer me. But how do you answer that? You know how I answer it? Yes. There are people who need more forgiveness than others. Me. I am the chief sinner. I need more forgiveness than all of you together. James 3.1 says that. Do not turn yourselves into teachers knowing that you will receive greater judgment. So I know I need more forgiveness than each and every one of you and each and every one of the people I know. Now, if you don't believe that that's you too, perhaps you have not understood the deal. Let me finish with a story. Nana, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Nana is our sister who challenges my convictions Not every week, because we don't talk every week. But whenever she brings me a story, and she says, I have a story for you. I says, oh boy, there goes my convictions off the chart. Nana has this life of being aware of what God does for her. And and, and this life of events that you say, yeah, there has to be God. So whenever, whenever I feel like I'm being agnostic or atheistic, I even feel like, Nana, tell me a story that reminds me that God is real and he's alive. Well, I have one Nana story. Only one. Well, maybe I have a lifetime, but because I'm, I'm so mathematical in my mind, I don't pay attention. But I have one that I remember. It is this night. I forget the time, but it was late, late. Everybody at home was sleeping. And it was dark. And I was sleepless and restless. And I was going through the worst nightmare that I have ever gone. And I don't wish on any person to go through that nightmare. And as I am weeping and desperate, I, crying, asked God, why me? And I even said to God, I have been serving you. Since I was 18 years old, I have forsaken things and dreams and aspirations because I was serving you. Am I the worst pastor? I didn't hear the voice, but I think I heard the voice. That's why. That's why. Because you are self-righteous in your theology, in your testimony, in your life of service, in your life of blamelessness, and whatever you want to put. And you forgot to boast in the Lord. And I use that bad example from me when I was 50 years old, perhaps to challenge some of you. What is your rest? 
What do you have your hope in? Do you think you're good? Think you're a good father, a good mother, good citizen, good children, good wife, good person. Is that your hope? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord and only in the Lord. And I finish with this quote from my friend Otto Sanchez. Because we compare ourselves to others, we are both our own judges and our own defense attorneys. So we always win. When you drive in the Dominican Republic, your faith is tested to the core. <laughs> People caught you and do all kinds of things. So I try to keep it cool and I try to chill so I can tell my story and not appear as this great sinner. But the thoughts I have, or oh, if I had a bulldozer, or oh, if I had a 400-ton truck right now to just squish them as ants. But I don't say anything. I'm just like there. Now, when they caught me, I burn inside. I boil. But when I caught them, you know what I say? Oh, oops, oops, oops. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You understand. I, I had to do this. Also, when it's me who caught, I had to do it. Sorry. But when you caught me, may you perish in hell, you wicked driver. <laughs> because we are our judges and we are our own self-defense attorneys. How do we tell the stories of problems with people? We are the good person. And my boss, the co-worker, the other person, whomever is dealing with me, is the evil person. But we are the victims and the innocent and, and the good ones. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because it is not true. There's always two sides to the story. So Otto ends up his quote by saying, only when we compare ourselves to Christ, we fall at his feet and beg for mercy. And when we do it, we shall find grace and forgiveness. Be the sinful woman, not Simon. Go to Jesus' feet and find mercy and grace for the time of need. Father, bless your word, we pray. And use it to those who hear it and even to the one who spoke it for your glory and purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.